Good evening, it's Pastor Jen. Central Baptist Church is having some sound system issues, which we are working on resolving, um, but we do not have a listenable service from last Sunday, August 8th. So I am, in order to try to keep our sermon series um, continuous and without too many gaps, um, I am going to re-preach Sunday's sermon. It may sound a little different because I don't have people to interact with this way, but um, hopefully the message that God wants us to hear will still be clear. The reading for this passage, for this message is from Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John wanted to kill, Herod wanted to kill John, sorry, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. He said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. 
Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Let's pray. Lord God, please be with my words. Thank you that you can meet with us through your word, um, which is living and active in real time, in, through video, through in-person worship. Thank you that you are present everywhere and you want us to get to know you better. We pray that that will happen through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may know that I have been involved in a number of different ministries, churches, parachurch ministries over the course of my life. Um, one of them that I wasn't part of for very long, but a couple of years, um, used to work with, actually still does, work with young adults. And it's a really good organization, still, <clears throat> excuse me, still in operation. They run student retreats and things like that. And usually at the end of the retreat, there are a number of students who have decided that they <clears throat> want to align their lives with Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. And so they make that commitment public by being baptized. In Baptist type communities like Central Baptist Church, um, we practice what's called believer's baptism. We believe that it is important for the person being baptized to understand um, what they're doing, what's happening to them. And they usually include some sort of baptismal vows, some kind of stated commitment made publicly about how you're going to follow Jesus with your life. So this would happen um, at these baptisms among these young adults. And the baptisms were always really exciting, but there was something that struck me as slightly odd the first time I attended one of these events and um, noticed that it was fairly consistent with how this was done um, at, the, at these events in general. And that was that in the vows, something was said usually that the person was committing to follow Jesus for the rest of their life to the best of their ability. That always struck me as slightly odd because the point of following Jesus and of trusting in his death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins that those acts have um, accomplished for us is that we can't do any of this to the best of our ability. We don't have the ability. <laughs> and so if we're relying on that, we're not going to succeed. Um, lately, I've been reading and hearing a lot about two different things that maybe seem like they're kind of not related. The first thing is spiritual formation. And I think spiritual formation is kind of what we're talking about when we talk about following Jesus. Um, you may know that I not only pastor Central Baptist Church, but I also lead a ministry called The Pilgrimage. It's an online ministry specifically for spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is basically what happens as we allow God's Holy Spirit to transform our lives, our spirits, so that we think and act more and more like Jesus. This is part of, we talked a few weeks ago about um, what 
is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says is unforgivable. This is part of how not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit as the Spirit is transforming our spirits. And I think that this is really happening at Central Baptist. I've seen it. I think it's happening to me. I've seen it happening among other people in the congregation. It's exciting. But I also have noticed myself saying sometimes, but also other people saying things like, well, I, I'm a Christian to the best of my ability, or I, I try to do the right thing to the best of my ability. Here's the thing. I think we say that because we're trying to acknowledge that we have not fully arrived yet. We haven't been full, fully spiritually formed. We know that we're sinners. We understand that our salvation is, as we sometimes sing, in Christ alone. In Christ alone, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. We know that we're not perfect. However, if it's really true that all of this is in Christ alone, if we are truly saved by his life, death, and resurrection, we should actually be becoming more and more like him, not to the best of our ability, but because of his ability. The other thing that I've been hearing a lot about is rest. Anybody know what that is? <laughs> I feel like I'm missing some. <laughs> but I've been hearing about it everywhere. It's all over my social media feeds. Rest, rest. It's important to take rests. I was talking to my spiritual director last week, and she was talking about rest. And she was actually preaching last Sunday about rest, too. Um, a podcast that I haven't listened to in a while, I turned on and they were talking about rest or Sabbath. And um, Joe Saxton is a Christian leadership coach and mentor. And she was tweeting something about the story, um, the Mark version of the story that I read for this week. Um, and she was saying, look, Jesus, in, that ver in Mark's version, Jesus invites the disciples to get away to a solitary place so they can rest. She says, Jesus gives us permission to rest. And I commented on her post and I said, the story makes me tired because they are going to rest, but then they get to where they were going and there's 5,000 plus people that Jesus decides they're gonna to minister to. It's exhausting to even think about. I don't have that ability. So what do spiritual formation and rest have to do with each other? They almost, to me, at first glance, seemed like opposites. So the passage that we're looking at today, Matthew 14, begins with something of a, of a meanwhile. <clears throat> Sometime between the beginning and the end of the last section of Matthew that we looked at together as a church, while Jesus is affirming his own messiahship, affirming John the Baptist as the ultimate prophet, declaring himself, Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit, teaching about two types of people, judgment and the methods and values of the kingdom of the heavens, John the Baptist went from asking questions about Jesus in jail to dead. So how did this happen? Well, John the Baptist was in jail because he had opposed Herod. Herod was this kind of puppet ruler from of Rome, but he was Jewish-ish. <laughs> um, 
and he ruled over the Galilean region where Jesus was from, and John the Baptist had challenged him and was imprisoned, um, hands up beheaded. Herod was a messed up dude. This is not the same as the Herod from chapter two that we looked at way at the beginning of this series. Um, that Herod was a paranoid homicidal maniac. This is that guy's son. This Herod married his brother's wife, who was also his, Herod's niece, half niece. Um, and he had John the Baptist killed because he, Herod, also had the hots for his stepdaughter, who was also his niece. Super messed up. So it may be, maybe the most sane thing is this idea that he had that somehow Jesus was the resurrection or the reincarnation of John the Baptist, which makes zero sense. But given his life choices, maybe it makes sense, <laughs> more sense than some of those. Anyway, John's dead. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Matthew tells us, then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Why would he do this? Well, first of all, he's already been working hard. He, the kind of ministry that he's been doing, the kinds of things that he's been teaching about is a huge, not only physical, but spiritually, spiritual and emotional outlay. Just preaching the last few sermons that I've preached has been draining for me. And I'm not even coming up with the material. It's Jesus material. So I can't imagine how exhausting this would be for him. Also, he's not only been working hard, his cousin, John the Baptist, has just been executed for being faithful to God in a really horrible scenario. And this is the third thing that might make Jesus want to get away. John's execution is a sign of what's coming for Jesus. So Jesus goes off by himself. This usually means the disciples are with him, not always, but in this case, we can tell that it does because he, he goes off hearing of this. Matthew says the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Oh, great. Just what you need when you're trying to get away. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Somehow, basically, apparently, the boat was the solitary place. The boat with 12 other guys was the solitary place. So all these, they land, supposedly nobody knows about their retreat center, but everybody knows about it. And they all show up there. Jesus heals them, but they don't leave. The disciples, who were most likely, from this, the account of this story in the other Gospels, they were, all, they were most likely actually also looking forward to this getaway. Maybe they don't have the same level of compassion that Jesus has for these people, and they are hinting to Jesus that a great out to get rid of this crowd would be supper time. Jesus, this is the middle of nowhere. There's no food here. These people have been here all day. Maybe send them away so they can go get food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. 
I'm not sure how I would feel about that. Actually, I have an idea how I would feel about that if I were one of the disciples. So then he provides more than enough food for way more than 5,000 people. It could have been, I was reading recently, it could have been up to 20,000 people actually. And he has the disciples distribute this food to all of these people. And then he sends the disciples off on the boat without him. And he, Jesus, goes by himself, finally, really, up a mountain to pray. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus is evading the crowd who are trying to make him king. That is, that must be happening. That's not a detail that Matthew feels the need to share with us. Um, anyway, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And then when he's ready, he's all refreshed. He just strolls out across the water to his disciples on the boat. Peter joins him on the stroll for a second. They get back in the boat. When Peter almost sinks, they go back to shore and there's the giant crowd again. So I sort of like to think of this story as the story about how Jesus and the disciples can't catch a break. Is this a chapter about rest? The last few sermons, as I may have mentioned, have been intense to write and preach because Jesus' teaching is intense. This sermon is challenging because I've preached the feeding of the 5,000 story in this church three times, not including this one, and the walking on the water story once. So as I was looking ahead to writing the sermon, I kept asking Jesus, what on earth do you have for us here this time? And the idea that I kept getting was somehow there was something in this passage about rest. And after a couple of days of mulling this over, a question started to emerge in my mind. And this is the question. What if the most effective way to become like Jesus is to start by connecting with him in the ways that he became like us, his human limitations like fatigue and grief, both of which he was at minimum experiencing in these stories. I think it's important for us to notice as we are reading the gospel stories, if we ever identify with Jesus and how we do it. Um, I think it's pretty typical to, for Christians to read the gospels and see Jesus as this hero who was victorious over death. And so we don't actually identify with him because we, we know we need him. We need the fact that he did that, that he was victorious, but we don't identify with him, which is unfortunate for our spiritual formation because we actually need to, because we're supposed to be becoming like him. But when we start with Jesus' divinity and victory, there's nothing relatable about that. Here's the thing. Jesus actually became one of us so that we could relate. So he could relate to us and so we could relate to him. So what if we start where he started with us, with his weaknesses? This is actually not the first time this year we've talked about Jesus' human weaknesses. He was not sinful. He didn't have that weakness. But we saw in John 4 that he got hungry, he got thirsty, he, got he needed a rest, he got tired. These are things that Jesus actually allowed himself to experience in his human body. I have been feeling lots of weakness lately. 
um, my own weakness has involved some weakness in my spirit, <laughs> which has not played out very Christ-likely all the time, um, but, but also physical weakness and emotional weakness and just kind of some spiritual exhaustion. There's been a lot going on here. I think our church has also been experiencing weakness in some ways for many years. Um, in our current season, we're grieving the untimely death of someone who prepared the way of the Lord. We have been wrestling through some hard teachings together, and some of us have other conflicts or worries simmering, or maybe not simmering, maybe actually blowing up. Jesus had those too. Jesus was dealing with religious leaders who, over the course of the last section of Matthew, we saw now want him dead. They're not just investigating anymore. They actually, now they're testing him because they actually want him dead. And his own family is questioning his calling and his teaching and his lifestyle. Is anybody here tired? What can happen to our Christ-likeness when we get tired? When I preached this on Sunday, my husband called out. It goes right out the window. <laughs> I'm not going to affirm that. I know it does for me. Um, what, do we, what happens to our Christ-likeness when we get tired? Well, if our Christ-likeness is based on the best of our ability, it does go right out the window. We stop trying. We relax into bad habits. I wonder if this is one reason many of us struggle to make time to rest. If we don't rest, we don't have to notice where, we, where our spirits are not being fed by the spirit or by the word. We don't have to relax and suddenly fall into, relax into the wrong things. We don't have to worry about that. We just keep busy, just keep serving, just keep doing the things. But Jesus got tired. It's okay to get tired. <laughs> How did Jesus handle getting tired? In other gospel versions of these stories, Jesus invites the disciples to get away and get rest because they've also been ministering. We saw in the last section too of Matthew that, or maybe the one before that, that Jesus had sent his disciples off on their own mission trip without him. So they have some fatigue too. Matthew, unlike the other gospel writers, shows us that Jesus himself is trying to get away because he is sad and tired. And maybe, since he knows that John's death is pointing to his own, even scared. You can tell I'm preaching this from home. There's a dog in here. I apologize. When Jesus got tired, he was still able to minister, though, with genuine love and compassion and even not send people away immediately. Jesus, how do you do that? Father, what are you trying to say to us here about this? Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I don't usually do point sermons, and this probably isn't really one, but maybe it is for me. Um, but I actually think there are some pointers about rest that we can learn from Jesus from these stories. Is the message for us that if even Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath and the source of rest, couldn't catch a break, we just need to suck it up and overextend ourselves too? This is how I have often perceived these stories. 
but I don't think that's the message. Sometimes it does turn out that the best way to love God on any given day is to have compassion on the crowds, even if the crowds, in our case, is one person or a small group of people. We don't necessarily always get the weekend retreat that we would like or that we think we need or maybe actually need. But I don't think that is what Jesus is showing us here. I don't think that's what he's modeling. Or at least not the main thing. Jesus gives us rest. He promises that if we come to him, he will give us rest. He gives us rest by empowering us to think and speak and live like him. Empowering us. It is not up to the best of our ability. He empowers us. That is rest. But that comes from resting in God. This is what Jesus was trying to do. True rest comes when we relax into the presence of God. We cannot do that when we just keep busy all the time. Jesus gives us rest by showing how to rest even when we're still living in this pressured, needy, empire-ridden world, even when we actually can't take the weekend retreat or do other kinds of self-care, he still shows us how to rest. Here are a few ways. The first way is be able to acknowledge fatigue or grief. As a spiritual directee of mine said last week, being able to acknowledge, being able to prioritize the bad feelings. Jesus didn't just stuff his bad feelings. He did not run away from his bad feelings. He was getting away to his bad feelings with the Father, not just stewing in them, not just running them through his head and being depressed, but actually acknowledging getting away to them, to deal with them with his Father. When Jesus heard what had happened, Matthew says, there are many places in the Gospels where we see Jesus taking time away with his father. But in this case, just that phrase alone tells us that it was in response at this time, it was in response to a personal tragedy and the knowledge of what he himself was going to face. He needed to get with his father to process that. So the next thing that Jesus models for us about getting rest is to intend to, and then take actual steps to get alone with God for a while. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat to a solitary place. He didn't plan it for the future. He didn't put it in his calendar and say, I'm gonna do this if I have time next weekend or whatever. He got in the boat and went. Here's the third thing that he does. He took moments of rest when he could even though it turned out that he was not able to block out a whole day or group of days right then. This is something that I believe he is showing us we can do too. Jesus and the disciples alone time ended up being only exactly as long as it took them to get, leave the shore where the house was that Jesus had just been teaching in and that Jesus kept going in and out of to the supposedly solitary place. The distance from the boat to the solitary, from the house to the solitary place on the boat was the rest. 
that was what they got. But for Jesus, at least, it was genuine rest. And I think we can know this because, first of all, since they were trying to get away, they were probably not rushing. They probably were enjoying the time on the boat. There were some professional boat people, <laughs> fishermen on there. So they it wouldn't have been stressful. There clearly wasn't a storm or high winds like there are later in the story. There was just, they just got in a boat. They were enjoying each other's company. Jesus tapped into the refreshment of that boat ride so that he was rejuvenated enough to provide more than enough for the thousands of people on the shore. More than enough. Not the best of our ability, not the best of the disciples' ability. That was only five loaves and two fish. More than enough for way more than 5,000 people on the shore. I think we can know that this boat ride was rest for Jesus because he had that, he was able to have that compassion and he was able to not send the people away. He cared for them. My spiritual director calls this micro resting. Um, just finding the moments of rest, even if it's just a little snippet in the day and taking it as rest, really resting, connecting with the father. This is the next Thing that Jesus shows us about rest. Rest with your people and with God alone. Jesus actually gets two rests or two respites with his disciples going and coming back, but he also makes sure that he still gets time with his father. He sends the disciples back on the boat ahead of him. He evades the crowds now that the work that was needed in the moment was done. He doesn't try to do more work. He, yes, he's trying to avoid being made king in a way that he's not supposed to be king. But I believe that he was also saying, I've accomplished what needed to be accomplished here. I don't need to do anything else. And he goes up the mountain to pray. And then when he's ready, he rejoins the disciples in the middle of the lake. And this is the last thing that I think Jesus shows us about rest. And that is, we need to play. Just lighten up. <laughs> this may seem like a stretch for this story about walking on the water. Um, I actually preached a whole sermon about it back in 2019. You can find it online and listen to it. Um, it's in the Peter sermon series, which is called Follower. But my hypothesis there, and I still have it, is that... This is a way that Jesus is playing. Jesus is letting his hair down. He is inviting his disciples to play too. There is no point to this walking on the water miracle. It could be showy and like convince people that there's something extra special about him, but nobody sees it except the disciples. He did not have to walk across the water. He could have walked around and that would have given him more alone time. He just traipses across the water in a windstorm and then one of his disciples wants to try it. Here's the thing about that. Jesus didn't demand that Peter get out of the boat. Peter wanted to get out of the boat because he was trying to be like Jesus. But he started sinking when he stopped resting and started striving. When he started trying to walk on the water to the best of his ability, he couldn't do it. 
when he was resting in his trust in Jesus Christ, he could. And when Jesus says to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? I really don't think he's scolding him for doing something so stupid or for doing something that Jesus could, didn't command him to do because Jesus invites him out when he suggests it. Jesus actually wants us to do what he can do. I think this is a kind of an affectionate nudge. You literally just saw me heal a pile of people, join me in feeding all of them, and are seeing me walk out here on the water. Why would you doubt now? Jesus was giving Peter rest by allowing Peter to identify with him in his fatigue, in his grief, in his fellowship, and in his playfulness, and in the process of resting together, he was making Peter more like him. Even though when Peter tried to rely on the best of his ability, he started to drown and Jesus had to save him, which, by the way, is what Jesus does. And Jesus had to remind him to shift his focus. Stop striving. Just rest. Just rest. If we try to obey God to the best of our ability, we will also try to rest to the best of our ability. And then the Christian life will be one of exhaustion, frustration, and failure. We either won't actually take the time to rest and we'll feel bad about that, or we won't actually rest when we're trying to and we'll feel bad about that. And we also will be tired. But when we identify with Jesus, cooperate with his spirit and follow his lead, we will discover that he really is rest. We can take our weaknesses to him in his weakness. We intentionally plan moments to spend with the Father and make steps to do it, no matter what happens next. We relax with our people and with God alone, and we play with God. When we do that, we will find rest, and we might just also be surprised to find that in that rest, even in the micro-rests, we are growing in other aspects of Jesus' character too, like compassion and patience and love because we weren't trying to walk on water or drum up those characteristics to the best of our ability we were just resting in jesus and his ability instead jesus says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest lord jesus we want to receive that rest we come to you in your name amen